last week, or right around the time, um, we were talking about Jesus' statement in Luke ten nineteen. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will hurt you. And we talked about how that is not a general promise uh, to everybody. And about the time we were talking about that, families were getting the words that some of their loved ones had died in a terrible plane crash. Uh, you know, with uh, the, the people from Harvest Church and Ken and Vaughn, the pastor at Harvest, you know, sustained some fairly serious injuries. He's still in recovery and whatnot. So today, as I, as I kick off a prayer, we'll continue to remember those families. You know, the connections of those families are just out all over the city. Uh, Bill Garner, a lot of y'all know him. He, uh, he was the son-in-law of David Libby, who was on the board of Truth Seekers for a number of years. So, you know, and then many other connections as well. So as I start praying, I'm going to remember those families, and I'm sure we'll want to continue to pray for them as well. Father, we, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and bless us. And we thank you for your word that gives us encouragement and guidance, particularly in light of difficult uh, realities. And, and today we think about the terrible uh, plane crash that happened last Tuesday um, around the time that we were all headed to class and, and the families that were so deeply affected by the four men who were, who were killed in that crash. And so we lift them up to you and pray that you'll comfort them, um, give them the help and the healing they need in the days ahead. And we lift up Kenan as well as he continues to recover and uh, we pray against infection and other things that are still some concern for him and pray that you'll restore him physically, but also uh, emotionally and spiritually. I know he'll have hard days ahead in light of the trauma uh, that he experienced last week. So uh, we, we commit all this to you. Ask that you'll help us today in our class as we continue to work through Luke, uh, difficult things that Jesus teaches and Sometimes it's hard to discern why things are written in the order that they're written in Luke. So I pray that you'll give us help in all that, and that in that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And so we ask all this in his awesome and powerful name. Amen. All right, y'all, last week we left off uh, right at chapter 11, verse 1. So if y'all want to open up uh, Luke 11, 1, in your notes, that's on page 23, uh, if you open up your notes, page 23 there, that's, that's where we'll be uh, today, down about a uh, little bit past midway, 11.1, Jesus teaches on prayer. Uh, this, this section that we're in, it began last week in 9.51, 9.51 through 18.34, you can see this at the very top of page 22 in your outline, um, this, this section is often called the, the travel section of Luke. Uh, this is the section in which Jesus is, is traveling from uh, the north of Israel in Galilee of the Gentiles. And he has set his face toward Jerusalem. And now they're, they're heading toward Jerusalem where, as Luke has said, uh, it was drawing near for, the time to be, for him to be taken up. And so he set his face to go to Jerusalem a little bit uh, just previous to that. Right before that, uh, the very end of or the middle part of chapter 9. You have the transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah had appeared uh, to Jesus on the mountain, and they were talking with him about his exodus that was about to take place. So uh, here in the middle of Luke, we, we've got this shift in geography where Jesus has now set himself toward Jerusalem, 
And he started to teach the disciples, as I say there in the outline, he's teaching the disciples the way on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Before uh, chapter 9, Jesus has been teaching the crowds in general. But what we see in in chapters 9 through 18 is that he still teaches the crowds, but now it's much more focused on the disciples. And he talks about if you're going to be my disciple, then this is is what we're going to do. Um, one of the things that really hit me, almost every, um, every commentary I read on Luke, they, they take this perspective. And I think one of the problems is a lot of people read Luke in isolation from the book of Acts. And y'all know I've said that it's so important to read these as a continuous work. Because many of the themes that he begins in Luke, he completes in the book of Acts. So if you don't see how those themes are completed there, then you kind of miss the story. And one of the things that, that the authors, uh, I think they read this into Luke, because I don't get this anywhere. One of the things that they read into these discipleship passages is, is they say something along the lines of Jesus is showing how he is taking the twelve and he's creating a new Israel from them. Like, you know, from the old twelve tribes, now the twelve apostles are going to be representatives of the new Israel that Jesus is developing, so forth and so on. Now, there's a lot of theological baggage going on in that, uh, and I won't get into that, that sideline now. But as I read through Luke, uh, it, to me it's so plain, and, and we'll especially see this as we get into the book of Acts, that Jesus makes it very clear he's not trying to establish a new form of Israel. He is doing something entirely new that's neither defined by anything that's happened in Israel, anything that's going on in their present, and really things that they can't even foresee happening. And I know that because when we get to the book of Acts, there's going to be the strong push to understand that the work that began in Jesus resulted in this entirely new thing called the church, where Jew, right, the people of Israel, and Gentile are united together in one body. And that was something that nobody foresaw coming clearly. And so uh, there's a lot of things that happen in Luke, that get us ready for that, and particularly in the discipleship teaching. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear, look, we're not, we're not trying to take the religion of Israel. I'm not trying to take the law of Moses and say, okay, we're going to amp that up and do it better. What I'm telling you is, number one, the Pharisees and scribes have been misreading this for you. They haven't interpreted this properly. And secondly, none of that would have gotten you ready for where I'm about to take you and for what I'm about to do here. So, Hang on for the ride. That's, you know, that's essentially what's happening here. So uh, as we get into this intervening section, I think it's really important to kind of keep that in mind where we're headed with this. And I'll, and I'll, I'll touch on some of it. But because today we're going to get into the episode where you have a very, um, very strong reaction against Jesus by the uh, leaders and by the people of Israel. And that's going to have ramifications for later. Uh, so let's just let's just pick up chapter 11. I'm, I'm, some of this I'm not going to spend as much time on as you probably might want me to, um, because this is this is fairly familiar. And so I want to talk about it more in the context of Luke rather than getting into the details of it. Uh, Luke 11, 1, uh, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. 
And so he said to them, uh, this is the first time we've had this request. All throughout this, we've seen Jesus praying and praying and praying. Everything, everything Jesus does, he's praying beforehand. He goes up to the mountain to pray. He goes out to the desert to pray. Before he does anything, he's praying. So here the disciples want him to come and teach them how to pray, just like John has taught his disciples how to pray. And so uh, the, the idea there is, you know, tell us the kind of things you're praying when you pray, right? Show us what you're doing. And so verse 2, this is what he said to them. He says, when you pray, uh, say this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our late daily bread, forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, if you know this prayer from Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6 has, has a few more embellishments in it, but it's essentially the same types of things that Jesus uh, uh, prays here. Um, I've, I've, I'm, I'm writing on this, this prayer right now for a couple of different things. And so um, I'm not going to go into all the detail here, but let me just say that uh, sometimes the translations get in the way of really seeing what Jesus is saying in this prayer because all of those are requests that he's doing. And a lot of us that we've remembered, you know, the King James version of this, our Father in heaven, right? Uh, Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Right? Uh, pardon? Yeah. Uh, right. Thou, and then the, and then hallowed be your name. That doesn't sound like a request, but in Greek it is. And uh, here, this the same thing uh, in this. And y'all, I'm gonna am I, am I gonna say that and get in all kind of trouble or not? That's just man, the voice. I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or t- yeah. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say it. Uh, Sometimes our modern translations don't always give the clearest translations because they have to respect the traditions that have come before it, right? So, so like with, with the ESV here, they, they keep the King James wording. Father, hallowed be your name, right? Now, if you look at other translations uh, like the Net translation, which I think has one of the best translations of this, they translate it this way. Father, let your name be sanctified. Oh, boom. Right now we're right now we're on to something. Wow. That mean that sounds entirely different. I, mean, I, I remember growing up learning this prayer in the little country Methodist church. And that first line I was like, what does that mean? I, I, I mean, you know, when I was 13 years old for 13 years, the only place I ever heard the word hallowed was right there in that prayer. What does that mean? Or in Halloween. <laughs> right. How, well, I, I don't think this is about Halloween, but. You know, this is Jesus. It might be. I don't know. He, 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 can, he can come out of left field and stuff. But the, the idea here is that the old King James word for to sanctify was to hallow something, right? Hallowed ground, you know. But he, so here in that first line, what Jesus is instructed us to pray is, Father, let your name be sanctified. Or really, I'd rather say it this way. Father, let your name be holy. Let your name be considered holy in other words let your very name be revered by everybody right so that move now that's a great prayer uh then the very next line is tied into that let your kingdom come so notice the the prayer starts with request for the father to make his name holy and also for his kingdom to come right that sets the context for everything else daily um so um, I'm 
in my mind. I got like a thousand things going on, and they'll all get a sidetrack. Uh, but here, the, these requests, these first two requests, set the stage for everything else. And so, uh, as he goes on to the next line, give us each day our daily bread. Um, so provide for these. There is endless discussion about what Jesus means by that. There is a word there uh, in this text. Give us each day our daily bread. The word for daily. Literally for years, scholars had no idea what that word meant. Because it only shows up here in the New Testament. And there's, there's hardly any references to it in classical Greek or anywhere else. And then in the mid-20th century, there were a, there were a group of... Um, a group of uh, parchments and papyrus things found uh, that, that had people's shopping list on it from the first century, right? Just uh, simple notes to neighbors and whatnot. And on one of those notes, it has this word on a note. And it's on a shopping list. And this mother is writing to a son or a family member. And she says uh, to go get the bread, but don't get the day-old bread. Get the daily bread. Right. And so the word is we want the fresh bread. Right. We want the we want the fresh bread that just came out of the oven. Now, scholars debate over whether it means the bread for today. Uh, some people take it as the our, our bread for today and tomorrow. But based on that word usage in that one place, I think what Jesus is saying here is uh, when we pray, ask the Lord for the pre- fresh, delicious provisions that we need today. Right? When, I, when I was growing up in, in grade school, my dad always uh, drove me to school every morning, uh, and then he'd pick me up in the afternoon, and I would work at the furniture store until we all went home. But as we were driving to school every morning, there was a, a bread bakery about half a mile before you got to the school. And if y'all have ever been around a bread bakery, you can smell it for miles around. And, 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 and this is why I was not good at school, because during those formative years... Until lunch, I was just sitting there thinking, ah, oh, I want some of that bread. It smells so good, right? So delicious, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's that fresh daily bread, right? In other words, Lord, we don't want the stuff that you gave us yesterday. We need the fresh stuff for today, right? I really like that idea, especially in light of, uh, if, if you put this in the context of some of Jesus' other sermons, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, he immediately follows this up with, listen, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes, right? Uh, consider the lilies of the field, right? I tell you, Solomon wasn't even arrayed in the splendor that they're arrayed in, right? So if your father provides for all these things, won't he provide all the more for you? Right? And Jesus is going to get to that in a second here. So here, this, this, this prayer is, Lord, we need fresh help today, right? We need fresh food today. We need fresh provision today. We need, you know... Um, the, the great song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it's based on text out of Jeremiah, right? Morning by morning, new mercies I see, right? That's the spirit of what Jesus is praying here. We need that new fresh stuff. Uh, and then verse 4, oh Lord, here, now see it was so good. And then you get to this fourth, third line here. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That is really the, the nucleus of Jesus' discipleship ministry in terms of how we think about our relationship in terms of others. And he's going to develop that for us a little bit later. In fact, every line in this prayer is going to come up in some way in the, in the chapters that we're about to get into into Luke. So that, that's why I'm not going to go into 
you know, real detail into this prayer. And endless things have been written on this prayer. Um, and then finally, verse 4, he says, and lead us not into temptation. Um, that word temptation can either be translated as temptation or testing. And some people think it would be better testing here because, as you all know, James tells us that the Lord does not tempt anyone to evil, right? Um, but, but earlier, you know, earlier, that, this, uh, the, the context for this, I think, is set with um, something that's already happened to Jesus, right? Back in chapter 4, if I could ever find that, I know that's in here. Uh, chapter 4 of Luke, verse 1, it says, Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. This is right after he's baptized by John. He, he, he uh, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Right? The Holy Spirit G- led Jesus out there to be tempted. Here, Jesus is saying given us permission to, to pray that we would not be led into this time of temptation. And, and let, let me just say this. I, I, think, I think the fact that this word can go two ways is significant. A lot of times in Scripture, I'm fully convinced that the writers use words that are somewhat ambiguous because they want us to think about all that that might imply. And I think what's going on here is the reality that, that wherever the Lord, and the Lord does this, Wherever the Lord leads us into times where he's testing our faithfulness, at the same time, the devil uses that opportunity to tempt us into unfaithfulness. And those two things go hand in hand, right? Jesus tempting by the devil in the wilderness is also a testing by the Father to show that he is supremely committed to him. You understand what I'm saying? So what the Father uses to increase our faith the devil will also also try to use to short us, you know, to short circuit us and to pull us off in left field. And so Jesus prays, it's okay to to pray. Don't don't lead us into that time of temptation, uh, which that's so encouraging on a lot of different levels. And and that's going to be really uh, significant a little bit later because these disciples, they're going to be tempted and tested and tempted and tested and tempted and tested all the way through the mid part of the book of Acts. Right. So we'll tie some of those things in as we go. Um, now, again, there's a lot more we could say about that prayer, but a lot of the, the things that we just touched on here, we're going we're gonna to follow along with in the chapters that come as Jesus illuminates some of this as we go. Uh, any questions or comments on that before we get to the next section here? All right. Y'all all right over there? <laughs> uh, it's all right. Uh, I was going to make sure eh, we, you know, we have a severe situation. <laughs> uh, all right, Luke 11, 5. Uh, Jesus immediately tells this parable that em- emphasizes uh, aspects of prayer. He says, now he said to them, which of you has a friend? Uh, and will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. This is... Uh, this is one of those people, one of these places where uh, we have to read Jesus so seriously that we miss the humor that he's laying out here. This situation that he set up, it's just comedic. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so wait a minute. You, you had a friend that just showed up at midnight from a journey <laughs> and you don't have any food in the house. So you got to go to your neighbor. Yeah, it's, it's meant to be somewhat ridiculous. Uh, because everybody would be thinking, what? I, I've never had that happen, right? But the setup is really important. 
Uh, verse 7, he says that now he will answer from within. Listen, don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. You know, often in, uh, at this time, families will all sleep together in the same room, right? Sometimes in the, on the same mat, on the same pallet. And so that's, that's a for real thing. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a good reason. Man, if I have to get up and give you bread, we're going to wake up the whole house. What, what's wrong with you? Verse 8, he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, because of his impudence or because of his persistence. And this is a really interesting word here that, that raises some question about the interpretation of this. Uh, the, the word uh, is really because of his shamelessness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Oh, I haven't seen that. Okay, I, I didn't know they went that way. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Shameless uh, because of his shamelessness. And let me just say there is a huge, there is a huge interpretational issue here over, okay, wait a minute, is, is because notice all the he's in there. He, his friend, he, this, that, and the other, right? There's a lot of he's. And because of that, the question is, wait a minute, is it the shamelessness of the friend that's asking for the bread? Or is it the shamelessness of the friend who's going to give the bread? Right? Now, now just hold that in mind and I'll, I'll tell you why, why that's a big deal. It says because of his shamelessness, his, his persistence, his, uh, all the boldness, right? And, and, and th- but think of shamelessness for right now. Because of his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will he instead give of, uh, give of a fish, um, I'm sorry, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? So then, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Boy, now that ends in a place that we didn't see coming, right? Holy Spirit, the giving of... Now, notice the, the whole point of this is to say, uh, go to your Father, ask, right, seek, knock, because He's going to give you what you need, even better than what you can ask for, right? He's not going to give you something that's going to be bad for you. If you ask for an egg, he's not going to give you a, a scorpion. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent, right? He's, he's going to give you the good things that you need. Now, the, the, the point is this. Some scholars debate uh, whether that word, whether that word shamelessness is applied to the friend who gives or the friend who's doing the knocking. And I find it really interesting that if this is the... If this is the friend who gives, the idea is, is that uh, just like the friend who is, who is shameless, in other words, this friend is going to give up, get up and give his friend what he needs because in the culture of the time, right, this is somebody in need and it would bring shame on me and my family to not provide what that person needs in their time of need. And, it's, and it especially falls into the rules of hospitality that were very important during the time. So the idea would be here that if this guy, right, if this guy is bound by his sense of honor to give his friend what he needs, then how much more so will your heavenly father give you? And I find that really attractive because it makes sense in what's going on here. 
Because Jesus is telling this parable to, to tell us something about the Father, right? Now, either way you take it, though, right? Uh, either way you take it, it's, uh, the, the net result of it is to, to persist in our prayer, right? To keep on praying and knowing that Father God is going to hear us and he's going to give us better than what we need, right? It's a really important idea. But, you know, there's some interpretational issues. And if you read commentaries on this passage, you'll see that people go back and forth on it. Uh, so here, this is a, this is a, no matter which way you shake it up, this, this could be a parable of contrast, right? Showing that he, your heavenly father is going to give you the things that you ask for. Now, Again, this is not a blanket statement. This is talking about things that we need, right? He's not going to give us a car and, you know, things that we don't necessarily need. These are all about the, you know, these are the daily, this is the daily bread that we need. These are the provisions that we need every day to live. And Jesus is very clear that the Father is going to supply uh, those needs. Maybe not in ways that we uh, think he should, but, but, but he does supply. And so that, that's going to be important going forward. Uh, but he mentions this. Now, uh, oddly enough, it, on, only this week I did a study on the Holy Spirit, the use of the term Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts, because of, of something we're going to get into here in just a second. And the Holy Spirit, it shows up a handful of times, clearly in the Gospel of Luke, but man, it just explodes in the, in the book of Acts. And, you know, and almost everything that happens in the book of Acts is kind of preceded in, in the book of Luke to get us ready for all that. But the Holy Spirit is not used nearly as many times uh, as it is in the book of Acts. And so this is one of those preparatory things, because as you and I know, uh, for Luke, the real pivotal issue is when Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples and in the disciples, right? To come and dwell his people. And so uh, this is getting them ready for that, in a sense, to, to pray that the Holy, that the Father would give uh, his people, the Holy Spirit, and you can ask for it. And that's exactly what he's going to do uh, when we get to the first chapters of Acts. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in, in uh, probably next week. I've got a handout that's got some references uh, uh, to the Holy Spirit. And so we'll tie some of those things in together. But I just wanted to mention that now because it's so uh, significant for what's going to come later. Anybody, any other questions, comments on that? We'll see. Yeah. Is this the first time that the giving of the Holy Spirit was mentioned in Luke? I think in Luke it is, yeah. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit uh, descends on Jesus at the baptism. He's full of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4. Uh, in fact, chapter 4, there's like five or six times that it mentions. Disciples. But not to the disciples yet. Yeah. Uh, this, is the, this is, as far as I can remember, this is the first time he mentions it. Uh, and it does, it did seem to me, and again, I'm going to have to go back because I haven't done this fully, but it does seem to me that the Holy Spirit really does not become associated with the work of the disciples until the book of Acts. That, that, that that's when it really makes the shift, in, in other words. Uh, but that's, that, that's a great question. And about the Holy Spirit, because no. Jesus teaching that to men never said that word. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, the, the, the Jews already had the concept of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that worked and moved and did whatever. But they didn't have it in the way they're going to have it after Jesus, right? Jesus is really going to illuminate that in a, in a way that uh, nowhere in the Old Testament do we have as much on the Holy Spirit as we do, you know, in the Gospels that, that Jesus teaches. I'm glad you said that, Graziella, because the important thing I meant to say, and I totally forgot about was, 
one of the things that we've seen in Luke, and we've seen it several times now, is that he will make these statements like that, right, that you're reading along. This is the first time it pops up this way. And as a reader, you're supposed to say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? You know, right? What does he mean by that the Father will give us the Holy Spirit? And then he, and then he doesn't answer it immediately, right? He's like, Hang on, we're just going to get all the questions out here, and then we're going to tie them all together. Right? It's great writing. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Um, now, verse 14, uh, cr- another critical episode here. Verse 14, it says, now, why, uh, now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. I think last week we talked a little bit about uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum ta- talking about the messianic miracles, miracles that the Pharisees and scribes may have been teaching in the first century. And I say may have because the, the Gospels never really lay them out that way. But I think it's safe to assume that some of this is in the background because of how many times these specific things are mentioned. But um, apparently um, there was some teaching that when the Messiah came, only he would be able to cast out a mute demon. Because, you know, a mute demon is someone who makes somebody not able to speak. And the Pharisees believed that the, you know, as they were casting out demons, they were, you know, they had exorcists amongst the scribes and the Pharisees in the times of Jesus. We'll see that here in just a second. Jesus referencing that. But they taught that they had these, you know, rituals they would go through. And one of the things that you would do is you would have to establish communication with the person. And then you had to get the name of the demon. And then once you had the name of the demon, then you could, you know, you could manipulate the demon, command it, so forth and so on. And so... Um, here, uh, Jesus casts the demon out, out of the mute man. And the big deal is the man can't speak. The demon can't, is not speaking through the man to reveal who his name is. Jesus doesn't need any of that, right? He just says, you come out, and the thing has to come out, right, by his power and authority. And we, we, we talked a little bit about that last week, and we're going to see more of that as we go forward, uh, some implications of that. But here, you know, this would have been evidence that, hey, okay, this is something different here. He's doing something the Pharisees aren't doing. And, and if the Pharisees are looking for this as a Messianic miracle, then this would have been proof. He's the Messiah. But instead, this happens. Verse 15. Now, some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him. Ooh, no, look at that. While others to test him. Kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Really? Really? Now, think about what Jesus has done so far. He's healed a leper, right? Uh, Again, one of the signs they were looking for, apparently. He's healed a leper. He's healed all kind of diseases. He's cast out all kind of demons, right? He has raised two people from the dead. And yet there's, uh, you know, but we're not sure. We need another sign, right? Oh, come on. Give me a break, right? Uh, Somebody said, uh, one of my teachers said, he said, we have all these mentions of Jesus going out and praying all night. He went up here to pray. He went out to pray. He said, I'm pretty sure, I'm convinced, after reading the Gospels, that what Jesus is praying is, Lord, give me the patience that I don't burn these people up where they stand, right? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Uh, 
verse 17, uh, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, listen, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it, now here's, look, look at this, this is so important. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is one of those places where Luke is collecting together several of Jesus' sayings and putting them together in a way that emphasizes uh, the reality that, um, right, you, again, what he says there, you're either for me or you're against me. We're, we're drawing the lines in the sand, and we need to understand where everybody stands. But this all this all begins with his accusation that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. That, that name, uh, Beelzebul, is a, um, is, is a form of the name Baal that you know from the Old Testament, the, the Lord God of the thunderclap and hurricane that was worshipped amongst the Canaanite religion. And, and this title, Beelzebul, uh, Beelzebul here, uh, notice they, they say he's the prince of the demons. And uh, in the context, Jesus mentions Satan specifically, right? So this, this name had more than likely uh, become one of the Jewish titles for the devil himself. He is the Lord of demons. Uh, some, some people say it was associated uh, with the Lord of the flies, the Lord, also the Lord of the dung heap, right? There's all kind of things tied into that. Um, that, that really doesn't help us at all. But, but the, the point is... Uh, that they're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus just, you know, logically approaches that and like, why would Satan want his own people cast out? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? In other words, y- y'all are just grasping at straws now. You don't have any good thing to say, so you just say the stupidest thing that comes to your mind, right? Uh, people, you know, one of the, one of the things... Um, when I'm teaching the, the worldview materials that I have, one of the things that I talk about, and a lot of people don't like this when they hear this up front, but it's so important to get our minds around it before we can make any progress, and that is everybody believes what they believe in large part because they want to believe it. Right? Now, now <laughs> part of us believing in Jesus is because we want to believe that what he teaches is true, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> and, it's, and it's really important because if we're not motivated out of those desires, then a lot of things fall out of pl- place. But one of the things that happens is that that can become so strong, people will continue to believe things that they want to believe, even if evidence to the contrary comes against their beliefs. And when that happens, people often lapse into insanity and... Uh, absolutely illogical ideas to try to confirm their beliefs. We've had a huge test case of this in the last two and a half years in America, right? Everybody believing what they want to believe, and by golly, you can't tell me any different no matter what the evidence is 
contrary to the fact or whatever. And everybody just thinks everybody else is crazy, right? Everybody, you've lost your mind. You've lost your mind. Let's all get together and fight, right? So, so here, uh, the, you know, the, these people have just, they don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe that he's Messiah. He's not fitting into their mold. He's not doing what they expect him to do. And so they give this excuse here. Well, he's just casting out demons by the power of the devil. And uh, Jesus tells them that's, that, that, that's ridiculous, right? We can follow his reasoning there. Why would the devil want to cast out demons? But, and this is the critical thing. Verse 20, and you need to underline this. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See that? That's the thing. This is what they've been looking for. This is the kingdom. This is what they've been expecting. And so Jesus is saying, look, if, 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 if God is behind me on this, then that means the kingdom is right here amongst you. And so you're just not denying me. You're denying the Father. You're denying the kingdom. You're, you're denying everything that this plan that's been set in motion since Genesis, right? Or really since eternity past. You're setting yourselves contrary to that, to that whole thing. Uh, so you need to pay attention to what's going on here. <clears throat> it's, it, it's really interesting, too. Uh, you, y- y'all can go look this up. Um, that, that term, finger of God, is not uh, super, um, super abundant in the Old Testament, but it is used in Exodus 8, 19, and also Exodus 31, 18, where... Um, where the Lord, uh, particularly the reference in thirty-one eighteen, where the Lord wrote the commandments on the tablets of stone with his finger. If you remember that, uh, that's the way Moses described it. Also, one of my favorite references uh, is in Psalm 8, where it says the heavens are just the finger work of God. Right? Whenever you look up at the heavens and the vast array, right? All the stars and galaxies and everything that we've seen. Y- y'all know the... Uh, Man, the images that came back last year from the, uh, my mind went blank, the new telescope. Scope they, yeah, yeah, the web, uh, just mind-blowing, you know. And you look at that and what God is saying, well, that's what I do when I ain't got nothing else to do. Right? <laughs> that's just my finger work, right? That's just something I do in the afternoon to pass time while we're doing important things, right? I love that image. Uh, but here, whenever, whenever it talks about God, Using his finger, right? That's, that's talking about his work. This is his handiwork, right? He's got his fingerprints all over it. And so Jesus is saying, look here, if, if that's what's going on here, then the kingdom has come upon you. This, this, this same argument shows up a little bit later in the book of Acts, when as the early church is growing, and man, it's spreading like wildfire, and the Jews don't know what to do, right? The Jewish leaders don't know what to do. And so they decide, hey, maybe we ought to start killing these people off. Maybe we just shut this thing down. And there's a debate in the Sanhedrin about what they ought to do about it. And one rabbi stands up, Gamaliel, who is Paul's teacher. He's, he's Paul's uh, discipler among the Pharisees. And he, he gets up and says, hey, wait, now hang on just a minute, right? Now, one guy popped up years ago. He claimed to be Messiah. What happened? They all died off. He wasn't the guy, right? So this is the thing. If, if this thing is not of God, then it's going to die of its own lack of life, right? It's just going to go away. But, but, if this is God, we're going to find ourselves standing opposed to God himself. 
So let's just step back and see what happens, right? Now, that's great advice, right? Because Gamaliel's thinking, I don't know, y'all. There's some wild things that's been happening, right? And, you know, they say he's come back from the dead, right, and ascended into heaven. And now you got this guy, Peter and John. I know both of them. They were useless. I, I would have not had them in my school for anything, right? Because <laughs> Peter's just talking out of the side of his mouth all the time. Don't know what he's talking about. John, you can't keep him out of a fight long enough. And now out here, and I'm telling you, y'all, I've heard them in the temple. They're preaching better than all y'all put together. So let's just wait. Let's hang on. Uh, and they all kind of go along with it, except Paul saw his own disciple. And Saul is like, oh, heck no, I ain't doing that. Let's go, y'all. Let's go kill them all off, right? And so we'll talk about that when we get the Acts. But the evidence is the same thing. Gamaliel says, let's just wait and see what happens here. Because if God is in this, we can't stand opposed to it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If God is with me, then the kingdom has come upon you and you ain't going to be able to do nothing about it. Right? That's the net effect of it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and then he, he talks about the fact that really what's going on here is that this is like a strong man who comes and lays siege to another person's palace. And, and because he's the stronger man, he can, he can destroy his defenses and his armor and takes over. And that's exactly what's going on here. Right? Devil ain't your problem. I'm your problem. I'm the one who's coming over, and through my power and authority, the kingdom is coming whether you like it or not, right? And so you better make sure you're on the right side. And then uh, verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, right? Uh, Man, politically incorrect. You're either with me or you're not. And everybody that's not with me, y'all are just going to scatter everybody out to the four winds. We're trying to draw people into the kingdom, but if you're not with me, You're just going to scatter out, right? And of course, that's where we're headed in these next several chapters, right? As Jesus turns up the heat uh, on what it means to be a disciple, we're going to see disciples walk away. We're we're going to see the leaders of the nation turn continually against him, reject him more and more. Uh, You know, look, look um, look over just at the end of chapter 11 here. Man, these chapters in Luke are so long, it always just astounds me when I look and I think, okay, over here in the next chapter, I'm like, no, it's just in the, it's in the same chapter, but three pages later. Uh, at the very end of, chapter, of Luke chapter 11, this is after Jesus pronounces woes against the Pharisees and the lawyers. See, all this is going to tie together for us. Uh, 11:53 and 54, it says, Now, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Verse 44, laying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They want to trip him up. Then they're going to get to the point where we need to shut him up. And then they're going to get to the point where we got to kill this guy. Right? Now, think about that for a minute. Think about that. These are the... These are the people that go to the nth degree to try to keep the Torah, right? To try to keep the law. So they're, in fact, Jesus in that list of woes, he's going to do in a minute. He says, man, y'all will tithe on every spice you have in the kitchen. And yet you neglect the weightier things of the law. You miss out, right? Somewhere along the lines, they've done all this stuff and somehow they've missed the point that, you know, I think God had a commandment about thou shalt not murder. And it seems like that's one of the major ones, right? And by the time you get to the end of this, that's exactly what they're trying to do. We got to murder this guy. Now, 
I mean, that's self-evident alone that you're not thinking correctly about this, right? Because you're ready to take action that the Lord has expressly forbidden in his Torah, in his teaching, the very thing you say you honor and, and want to do, right? So this is just going to get amped up with the scribes and the Pharisees. And let me just say, Jesus doesn't do anything to help that out whatsoever. He's going to pick fights and make it worse and turn everybody's apple cart over and over and over again. And uh, it just, yeah, it's just going to escalate as we go from here. Uh, but here, this is a critical turning point. Uh, in fact, if you look at Matthew, Matthew has this as kind of a dividing point in his gospel. And it's after this episode that Jesus begins to speak in parables. And he says, I'm going to speak in parables because I'm about to shut the kingdom off from the crowds and those who are against me, but I'm going to open up the secrets of the kingdom to y'all, my disciples. So, so this, this is a real critical turning point uh, in the gospel. And it's also for Luke too. We're, we're going to see after this uh, the hostility toward Jesus and with Jesus is just going to increase. Verse 24, he tells a really interesting uh, parable here that, that, that sums up all this. <clears throat> and I think the way uh, Matthew uses this sermon informs in part the way we ought to think about it here. Um, verse 24, Jesus says, Now when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And then the state, the last state of that person is worse than the first. And now notice, you don't have any explanation of how that really fits in. One of the, one of the huge questions that's, that comes up when looking at some of these passages is, you know, as we talked about, more than likely, Mark and Luke have already written their Gospels. So there's this huge question about, as Luke quotes some of these things, how much does he may assume that people are going to understand what Mark and Matthew have written and bring some of that over to inform the way they interpret what's going on here? And, and I think that may be valid for this because uh, in, in, in the Matthew thing, this parable happens in the same context. And what Jesus uh, makes clear is he's not just talking about a single person here but that he's using this parable to illustrate what's going on with Israel, right? That Israel is like somebody who has a demon and they cast that demon out. Uh, but then because they don't fill themselves up with the right things again, right? Notice when the demons come back, they find the person to be swept clean, but he's empty, right? You've cast it out, but you haven't filled it up with good things. And so when that happens, then the demon gathers up seven worse. They come in. And things are worse than it was in the beginning. And, and I think that's in part uh, the way Luke wants us to understand this here. Because uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens, in fact, I, let, let, let me tie this together. If you look over to the very end of the book of Acts, one of the things that Luke, I think, is trying to explain for us, both in the gospel and in Acts, and this is something that comes up in, in Paul's letters, uh, it's a major issue if you study the book of Romans, which I know most of y'all have, this is one of the major questions that shows up in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and it's basically this. If Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, why didn't Israel accept him? And since they rejected him, well, what's going to become of Israel? Very end of the book of Acts, last chapter, chapter 28. 
uh, this chapter brings to a conclusion a lot of these threads that began developing in the gospel. And one of them has to do with uh, the nation of Israel and their rejection of Jesus. Because as you know, uh, by the time we get out of Luke and into Acts, Israel, for the most part, has rejected him. And so the, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, goes to the nations. And that's exactly what Paul talks about here. Acts 28. Um, Paul is under arrest. He is being sent to Rome because he, he Paul is a Roman citizen and he's made appeal, an appeal to Caesar. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get into Acts next year. But he's made an appeal to plead his case before Caesar as a Roman citizen. So he, they've carted him off to Rome. All kind of things happen, shipwreck. Uh, and he finally makes it to Rome. And while he's in Rome under arrest, I'm going to pick up in verse 23. Uh, Acts 28, 23. Very end of the book of Acts. This is the conclusion to Acts. And really it's the conclusion to Luke as well. Uh, verse 23, it says, Now when they had appointed a day for him, that is a day for him to go before Caesar, they came to him as had his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them... Um, they 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 expounded. Uh, well, shoot, I lost my place. Uh, he expounded to them, testifying to the, uh, to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, this is this is. Uh, I'm sorry, the, where it says they had appointed a day for him. Uh, Paul had earlier. Uh, in verse 17, it says, After three days he called together the local Jewish leaders of the Jews. And when they had come together, he said, Hey, I want to I talk to you about some things here. So here he's uh, trying to explain to the Jewish leaders about the kingdom of God and convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's really important, from the Old Testament. Verse 24, some were convinced uh, by what he said, but others disbelieved. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. <laughs> uh, so this is what Paul says to them as they're disagreeing and having arguments over what Paul's saying here. He says this, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say you will indeed hear, but you will not understand. You will indeed, indeed see, but you will never perceive. Now stop right there. Remember in Luke how many times Jesus has talked about seeing and hearing, seeing and hearing. You see his power and authority in his miracles, and you hear his power and authority in his teaching, right? The seeing and the hearing. So here, Paul is just saying, man, this is, fine. This, this is fulfilling what Isaiah was told about, y'all. You're going to see, but you're not going to see. You're going to hear, and you're not going to perceive. Uh, verse 27, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Look at that. See that? Their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Look at that, right? This is, this is Paul's final word to the Jewish leaders in Rome. Y'all have rejected him, but the nations are going to receive him. But this was y'all's. This was your gospel. This was your kingdom. And you're too dumb to open your eyes and your ears and look at what God says. And turn to him and I will heal them. 
at one point in Acts, when, when Paul is uh, uh, really going at it with, with some of the, the people who won't believe in, uh, it, Luke just makes the, the offhand remark, and because they didn't consider themselves worthy of eternal life. <laughs> I love that phrasing, right? They rejected their Jesus and uh, they rejected Jesus and his authority. And the way he interprets it is these people didn't consider themselves worthy of eternal life. He offers them eternal life and they just throw it out with the mud. Right. Just cat- and that's what that's what's happening back here in Luke. Jesus has done all these works. He's done all these miracles that prove without a doubt that he is who he claims to be. And they say, well, you're doing work by the devil. And we ain't going to believe in you. And we're going to try to trip you up. And when we can't trip you up, we're going to try to kill you. Right? So this, I mean, you know, we're so used to hearing this story. Sometimes we forget how baffling that is. You know, how unbelievably uh, just, you know, it's heart-wrenching to think that, that here some of these people have waited all their lives. They've been in Bible study all their lives, waiting for the kingdom to come and for the Messiah to come. And when he shows up, well, you're not really who we're expected. So you, you can't be the one, right? You, so we're just going to throw you out. Ah, it's, it's crazy the way it works. Let's, let, let's jump back. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Let me, let me read a couple of things here that will get us ready for uh, next week. Uh, right after that, <laughs> this again, some of the oddest things in Luke. Uh, Luke 11, 27, and 28. <laughs> Uh, this is one of those places where it baffles me why Luke has put these things together in this order. It's just not exactly clear, uh, but you'll see the point of it. So verse 27, it says, Now as he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and uh, cried out to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Well, that's interesting. Um, but verse 28, but he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. All right, so here this woman, and, and what she's doing is good. You know, she's, she's, she's praising Jesus because she realizes who he is, apparently, right? And, and the blessedness of her mother. It, it's also probably uh, tying into the fact, if you remember uh, in Mary's hymn, uh, when she goes to Elizabeth and, you know, John the Baptist leaps and Mary says her hymn, uh, in that hymn, she says, all the generations forward are going to call me blessed, right? So it may be that Luke is tying this in as a partial fulfillment for that, that, that people realize, and this woman realizing uh, that, wow, your mom, you know, who must she have been to, to give birth to the Messiah, right? We know who she is. But Jesus turns it around. And, and again, uh, the same argument from the lesser to the greater. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, that's about the fifth time he said that in this context. Uh, the important thing is to hear the word of God and keep it. And then he, he gives an illustration, and we'll end with this. This one's fairly easy to understand. Verse 29, and so, the, and so as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Now, underline that. We're gonna, that's going to be really important for something that's about to happen here in, in, uh, next week that we're, that we're going to get into. Uh, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
And in fact, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. Uh, notice Jesus starting to mention the idea of the judgment here. In this, he, he didn't talk about that at all earlier on. Now in this middle section, we're going to start to hear all of these things that Jesus teaches that points us toward the reality that a day of judgment is coming. And we need to be prepared for that. And so here he talks about it. Uh, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Y'all remember uh, uh, that story where, where the queen uh, Sheba had come up to, to hear, hear Solomon uh, and his wisdom. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's something greater than Solomon here. Uh, there's also some interesting things. Here, uh, this queen comes up from the ends of the earth. Jesus is going to send his disciples to the ends of the earth, right? <laughs> uh, verse 32, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment uh, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right? So here, the, the uh, sign of Jonah, as, uh, Jesus, uh, as Luke lays it out for us, is... Um, is the fact that there are going to be people that listen to Jesus preaching and they're going to turn. They're going to repent. That's going to be the sign, right? you understand what I'm saying? Just like Jonah preached to Nineveh and the Ninevites repented, so now Jesus is preaching and some of the people who are hearing are going to repent and they're going to turn. And when they do, those people are going to rise up against this evil generation and testify against them in the judgment, right? That y'all should have paid attention. Y'all should have listened. And that also ties into something. Uh, let, me, let me lay this out. Just um, let me go back. We're, we're, we're going to go back. I remember Luke, man, this is a sophisticated, <laughs> sophisticated unwinding and raveling together of ideas. Way back in chapter uh, 7, toward the end of chapter 7, Jesus had told this in, in part uh, a parable, and he, he interpreted it through himself and John the Baptist. And I'll read this and we'll close out. John, uh, sorry, Luke 7, 33. Luke 7, 33, it says, Jesus says, Now John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend uh, of tax collectors and sinners. Verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all of her children. And remember, we said, that's kind of an odd thing. And I, and, and I said that the point Jesus is making is, is I think, is this. That the, that the people who are wise are going to listen to his teaching. And in the end, they're ultimately going to be justified. Right? Wisdom, if it's real wisdom, when the end comes and the judgment finally comes, wisdom is always going to be recognized as wisdom. You understand what I'm saying? Right? Truth is always going to be recognized as truth. Wisdom is always going to be recognized as wisdom. And so here, you know, this ties into this idea that you may reject me now, but there is a time coming and it will happen absolutely at the judgment where I'm going to show I was right and you were completely wrong. You better wake up. You had better wake up before that day comes because even the pagan Gentiles are going to rise up at the judgment and they're going to condemn this generation because y'all have rejected me. You, you've turned your back on me. So you have better wake up. And this is going to be important because Jesus here next week, we're going to get into the fact 
where Jesus says, listen, there's, people will be forgiven a lot of things. They will be forgiven for blaspheming against the Son of Man, but they will not be forgiven for blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Right? So all of that ties into this work that's been uniquely done in this generation that Jesus is part of, where they're seeing things that nobody had ever seen before or will see again, really, in the same ways. And all of these things that are happening are giving absolute proof that Jesus is who he claims to be, right? But that won't be made clear until the judgment, right? That won't be made crystal clear until everything is laid out and the Father says, yep, okay, looky here, this is the way this all played out. So again, there's this huge warning uh, to get right, to listen to the truth, uh, before it's too late. Now, y'all, that's a, we're a little bit over. That's a, that's a good place to stop. We will pick up right there next week in uh, 1133. Let me write that down on my handy little sheet right here. We'll pick up in 1133 and move on forward. Go ahead and read uh, the rest of chapter 11 and on into chapter 12. We will definitely get into that next week. Uh, and then we will uh, move on from there. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Everybody needs to get on back to work and stuff. We'll get you all out of here. And if you have any questions or comments, I'll be happy to stick around and talk with you afterwards. But let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and carry us along. We thank you for your word. Um, We are convinced that it's true. uh, And we are living in the midst of a dark and twisted generation that not only rejects your truth, but rejects the very idea of truth in general. Uh, we, are, we are living in a time, I don't think any of us force, could have foreseen, that people are rejecting reality itself. Uh, the things that are, that are just plainly obvious for everybody to see. And so that does two things. That puts a lot more pressure on us, but it also gives us a great opportunity. Because all of these idols that are being built through technology and through the insanity of our time, they're about to come crashing down in a very hard way. And I think people are going to be pushed back uh, to ask those questions about what is really real, what is absolutely true. And we, as the church, are the only ones that have the answers to that. Uh, As Paul said to Timothy, the church is the pillar and the support for the truth. And so uh, apart from us, people can't know you. And they can't know the reality of who Jesus is. So, Lord, I pray that everything that we do in this class together and all the other things that we do to learn and study your word will have its fruit in our lives, that we will be uh, emissaries and people who stand for the truth and who teach the truth and even more importantly, who do the truth. Because as Jesus has just told us, it's not important that we just know the word, but that we actually practice it as well. And so we pray that you would enable us to do that. And we thank you for your spirit that is here to do that very thing. And uh, we pray all this and ask all this for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.